The following audio is from LCBC Church. To learn more about LCBC, visit lcbcchurch.com. Well, it's so good to have you here across all 12 of our locations. And if you happen to be streaming online with us, then uh, glad you're joining us as well. We're actually in a series of studies that we've entitled I Quit. And in this series, we're talking about the fact that God has designed you and I to experience some amazing things in life, a remarkable life. But in order to experience what God has designed us to experience, we don't necessarily always have to add things to our life. We may actually have to take some things away. And, and so we're talking about I quit and making some choices to quit some behaviors that may be keeping us from experiencing all that God has in store for us. And so we've given you today um, some stickers just to kind of say, hey, you know what? Um, remind yourself of some of the commitments that you're gonna make over this series. And so you can put this at home, you can take it to your office, you can put it in the car, wherever you need to put it to remind yourself to say, you know what, there's some things I need to quit or choose to quit in order to experience all that God has designed me to experience. So today, I actually wanna challenge you to make the choice to say, I quit complaining. I quit complaining. Recently, some folks did a survey, just informal survey to learn what kind of things do we typically complain about? And what they found is we all tend to complain about the same things. We just kind of come at them from different perspectives. For instance, a lot of people complain about their jobs and they'll say, I don't like my job. I don't like the people that I work with. But then the survey also found an equal number of people said they complained about the fact that they didn't even have a job, that they wanted a job. And some people complain about having too much to do. And they're just, I don't have enough time. I'm just overwhelmed with all that I have to do. Same number of people complained about the fact that I don't have enough to do. I'm just going crazy. I'm bored out of my mind. And survey also found that the complaints of men and women are actually very different. Different kind of complaints. Women, some of them complained about not having children at home. Other women complained about having children at home. And some women complained about their husbands not living up to expectations. And then a lot of women complained about not having a husband at all. And so it just kind of was all over the board. And when it came to men, men were just deeper, I guess, because men tended to complain about things like traffic and, and bad drivers and potholes in the streets. And so way to go to the men for complaining about significant things in life and like potholes and, and traffic. One man actually complained about people who put the roll of toilet paper on the wrong way. And I've got to say, I actually, I agree with this guy. I mean, I think about that. I go, I can understand why he would think it's wrong because there is a wrong way to put the paper on the roll. I mean, all of us know it goes over, not under. And if you can't be trusted to put it on right, you shouldn't be allowed in the bathroom, maybe. I don't know, but... And we laugh about what people complain about, and you kind of go, okay, it is annoying. Hearing people whine, hearing people complain, it's an annoying thing. But really, what's the big deal about it? I mean, why do I need to quit when it comes to complaining? Is it really that big of a deal? And I would say, you know what, here's the deal. If you want to live a remarkable life, if you want to experience life to its fullest, if you want to experience life the way God intends for you to experience it, you've got to say, I quit. And the reason why you've got to say, I quit to complain is because at its deepest level, when we complain, what we're really saying is, God, can I trust you with the details of my life? Do I trust you, God, with the details of my life? Do you really know what's going on in my life, God, and are you able to handle me in my life? And it's not a matter 
of having our lives go smoothly. It's, it's not a matter of just finally achieving the perfect life without any negative things, no interruptions, no negative surprises. It's not about living this troubled free life because a troubled free life is never gonna happen. It's all about, do I trust God with the details of my life? Do I really believe that he's capable to guide me and lead me in my life? Because we all know troubles are gonna come. It's gonna happen. Life is not always rosy. God never promises that it'll always be rosy and there will always be people that disagree with us. Circumstances are gonna change on us that we may not like and I think that's why a man named Job actually said this. He said, people are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. If you sat around and watched a campfire and you see the sparks fly, it's gonna happen. And he says, you know what? That's the way trouble is in our lives as well. Trouble is going to happen. Now, when I was a kid, there was actually a bumper sticker that was popular around that time, and I would be riding in the back seat of the car with my brother and sister, and the way it worked in our family is my dad always drove, my mom sat in the passenger seat, my older sister, because she was older, got the window on the right side, my younger brother, because he was younger, got the window on the left side, me in the middle, I always got the hump, and I mean, that's kind of the way it worked. I'm not complaining about it, but that's just kind of the way it worked, and I mean, that's the life of a middle child. We're always just giving up the better for our older and younger siblings, but, but we're okay with that. We're happy with that, not complaining at all, and from time to time, as we would be riding in the car with my parents, we'd pull up to a stoplight, and we would see on the back of a car this particular bumper sticker, and, and my parents would blush when they would see it. They would try to distract us so we wouldn't see it, and that caused us to be more interested, and so we would peer over the front seat, bench seat, not bucket seats. That didn't happen back then, and the better view of the bumper sticker we wanted to see, and then we would see it, and we would look at each other, and we would kind of snicker and laugh because... To us, this bumper sticker was the raciest thing we had ever actually seen. Now, before I tell you what the bumper sticker actually said, you have to understand, in my entire life, never once have I heard my parents utter a curse word. I mean, they just never did. Proper language was used with them all the time. They expected the same for us as kids as well, which I think is why I developed such an appreciation for eating soap when I was a kid. Um, Lots of soap I would have opportunity to eat. I don't know if parents still do that today. I'm not even sure if it's legal anymore. It's probably considered abuse. Uh, we did it with our kids, and what I know is it works. It, it really does work. I mean, I can't say any word that even resembles a curse word. I have to spell them out if I'm telling somebody about something like it. Ruth and I will spell them out to each other, and, and, and people will say, David, you're such a prude when it comes to your language. And I say, you know what? You'd be a prude, too, if you ate as much soap as I did as a kid <laughs> growing up, and... So that's what made it exciting when we would pull up to the intersection, see the car in front of us, and it would have this bumper sticker on it. And um, I mean, you've seen it before, you know the word. Count of three, let's all say it together. One, no, 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 no. We're not gonna do that. Some of you I would have had to send to the bathroom to wash your mouth out with soap and um, but at least it would be liquid soap. I mean, when I was a boy, and I'm not complaining, but when I was a boy, we didn't have liquid soap. And so my mom, she wanted to see teeth marks in that bar of soap. She wanted a chunk to be gone out of that bar of soap. None of this kind of wishy-washy liquid soap stuff. But again, I'm not complaining. But it happens. Stuff happens. It just does. That's the way life is. And rather than complain about it, God says, you know what? There's a different way to approach the things that happen in our lives. So I ask you to grab a Bible, open it up to James chapter one, page 930 in the Bible there at your seats. There should be Bibles around you in the Bibles at your seats of all of our locations. 
near the back of your Bibles, James chapter one, page 930. Now the words that we're gonna read are written by a man named James. James was the half-brother of Jesus, which means he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary. And what's amazing about the words that James wrote is that when James was growing up with his brother Jesus, he thought Jesus was crazy. He wasn't buying any of this nonsense that Jesus was speaking when he would talk about being the son of God. And I think James would say, he's no more the son of God than I'm the man on the moon. And he just wasn't buying it. And, and even when he saw his brother die on a cross and be buried in the grave, I think he probably was thinking, you know what, it serves him right. What else would you expect if you go around telling people you're the son of God? And yet then something very incredible happened totally turned James' world upside down. And after Jesus' death, after Jesus' burial, and Jesus was dead and he was buried in the ground, James actually had an encounter with Jesus. And all of a sudden he realized Jesus isn't dead anymore, he's alive, and it rocks James' world, and he makes this complete turnaround from going to thinking his brother is just kind of a lunatic and crazy to actually becoming one of the greatest spokesmen for Jesus in his day, and Jesus was alive, and it made all the difference in the world for James. And so James actually writes these words 2,000 years ago, and you know what? What we discover as we read the words of James, stuff happened back then, too. That's not something new. Always been true, stuff happens. And so he writes to tell his peers how to handle the stuff of life, how to handle the adversity, how to handle the difficult times. And let me just give you a hint up front. It's not complaining. That's not the way to handle it. James chapter one, verse two. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, now let me just stop there, because he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, when it happens, not if, when it happens, they will come sooner or later, probably sooner, you're gonna face adversity, and it will happen, so don't be surprised by it. And yet, isn't it something that every time we find ourselves in a tough situation, we act surprised? We go, oh, I can't believe this happened to me, and, but it's gonna happen. So picture this, picture yourself, you're driving down the road. You pulled out of your driveway and you're out headed on the road, you're headed out towards vacation, the sun is bright, you're driving your shiny new convertible. No, it's not a convertible Mustang, it's a Camaro. This is a dream, not a nightmare. And so you're driving <laughs> down the road and the top is down and the music is blaring and you don't have a care in the world and you think, we're heading on vacation, what could possibly go wrong? And then without any warning, there's a sudden jolt. And the car swerves to the right and it just comes to a halt and you get out to see what happened, but you know what already happened. I mean, you hit a giant pothole, you blew out a tire and suddenly as quickly as it had started, it's all over again. And which I think is why men are concerned about potholes. It all starts with potholes and that's why we're concerned about that. But trouble is gonna happen. It just does, stuff happens, and trouble may be just a phone call away. Maybe the doctor calling to say, you know what, I'm sorry, but it is cancer. It, maybe the voice on the other end is informing you that you know what, your daughter has just been arrested, or, or you may be fired for no apparent reason, or, or someone you trusted started spreading lies about you, or your husband decided he just didn't wanna be married anymore, and the list of possible troubles is endless, and so the way do we respond to it? Again, James chapter one, verse two, dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. When trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I don't know about you, but I look at this and I go, really? 
James, are you nuts? Do you, do you understand what kind of things I go through? When troubles come my way, be glad, but actually consider myself fortunate? Really? Is that really what I'm supposed to do? Another translation of the same sentence says it this way. It says, when all kinds of trials crowd into your life, and they will, when they crowd into your life, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. I go, really? <laughs> I tend to think of them as intruders. I don't tend to think of them as friends. And so you kind of step back and go, let's, let's just be real here. I mean, this is not the natural response. The natural response is anger, yeah. The natural response is complaining. The natural response is despair. It's running away, but great joy, welcoming them into my life as friends. I mean, that's not the way I tend to respond, and it's just not natural, which I think is Jane's whole point. When you find yourself with difficult times, don't respond in a natural way. Instead, it's something supernatural that's needed. A supernatural response that's only made possible by God's spirit inside of us, enabling us to look at that situation the way God sees it, not necessarily the way we would see it, and it's not natural. I think what that tells us is you can't trust your feelings when things are going bad. You can't trust your feelings. We've gotta rely on God's spirit in times of trouble and when people you love are in great pain or when you're facing a senseless tragedy, when a friend turns against you and when life is kind of tumbling in all around you, your feelings are not gonna be an accurate guide for you. If you go with your feelings, you're gonna complain. If you go with your feelings, you're gonna run from the situation. Everything inside of you is gonna see it as a negative experience but, but remember, God may see the whole thing very differently than you. And isn't it funny how when things go bad, it's God's fault. God, what are you doing to me? When things go good, I'm pretty smart. I, I, aren't I pretty intelligent in this? And when things are going good, we think it's us. When things are going bad, we think it's on God. And so James says, look, when bad things happen, first of all, consider it to be something of great joy. Then he goes on, verse three. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. He says, when your faith is tested, your endurance actually has a chance to grow. And what he's saying is, look, when you go through a hard time, your faith is actually being tested, and until then, it's just theory. You don't know if you really believe much or not. I mean, you never know what you actually believe until hard times come. And then all of a sudden, you go, oh, okay, I guess I do really believe this. And when the phone rings with bad news, when your son winds up in prison, when your best friend betrays you, when you lose your job, when a parent suddenly dies, when life comes apart at the seams, then you begin to discover what you really believe. But until then, your faith is just speculative. You, you don't know because it hasn't ever been tested. And James says, you know what? You can talk about God all you want to. You can show up at church and sing about God every week. You can sing about God and raise your hand. You can wave your hand as you sing about God. But until you go through some hard times, you don't know if the words you're singing, if you really believe them or not. And, and once the bad things happen, and they will happen, then you begin to find out what's real for you. And so James says, hard times are actually some of the best times for us, for our endurance to actually grow, for us to grow stronger, for us to be more, more mature. And I actually read this week, an interesting challenge by a guy named Ray Pritchard. He said, when hard times come, then be a student and not a victim. 
Be a student and not a victim. And then he kind of talked about the difference between a victim and a student. So let me just kind of give you some examples. A victim, when hard times come, it it says, why is this happening to me? Well, a student is gonna say, what can I learn from this? A victim is gonna say, others are to blame for my problems. A student is gonna say, how much of this did I bring on myself? A victim is actually gonna say, life isn't fair, but a student is gonna say, this could have happened to anybody, it just happened to happen to me. And a victim is gonna say, God's trying to punish me. A student is gonna say, God is helping me grow, he's given me an opportunity here. A victim is saying, the deck of life is stacked against me, there's no hope, but a student says, you know what, if God wants, he can reshuffle the deck anytime that he pleases. A victim says, I I worry about what other people are gonna think about me in this situation. A student says, you know what, the only thing that really matters is what God thinks about me. And all of a sudden we take on the role of a student instead of a victim. And I know that's not popular today. Today the trend is, man, let's be a victim. And a lot of things are gonna happen to us beyond our control. And we've got a choice, James says, on how we respond. We can play the victim, we can play the student, but it's our choice how we respond. He goes on, verse four. He says, so let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. He says, let it grow, let what grow? Let our endurance grow, it could even be let our troubles grow, but let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, when you have been tested, when it's been strengthened, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Doesn't mean you'll never step up again, it doesn't mean that you'll have a perfect world, it just means when things come at you, when stuff happens to you, then you won't be blown over by it. You'll be able to withstand whatever is coming your way. So let it happen is what James is saying. Don't try to back away. Don't complain about it. Don't short circuit it. I like the way the message actually interprets this. It says don't try to get out of anything prematurely. And that's what we tend to do when hard times come. We go, man, I just need to get out of this as quickly as I can. We try to avoid it as much as we can. And the danger is, if we try to get out of it too quickly, then we're gonna short circuit the process that God is putting into our life so that we can actually become more mature, so that we can actually grow in our endurance. And a few years back, John Piper actually wrote an article. And in this article, he said, in every moment of our lives, God is working. He said, in every moment of our lives, God may be doing 10,000 different things. He said, 10,000 things in any moment of our lives, God may be doing, but he said, typically, we only see three of those things. We don't see all the other 9,997 things. And his point is, God is doing so much more in our lives than we could possibly grasp, and we can't imagine all that God is doing. And, And so what we do is, because we don't understand all of it, we start complaining. And we start moaning and griping. And John Piper says, for us, it's like little kids peering through a keyhole in a door where you're just kind of peeking through the hole and trying to see what's on the other side. And you can see three things, but you can't see the other 9,000 things that are there. And the danger comes when we assume what we can see through the peephole is all that's there. And we forget that, you know what, God is doing so much more than we could ever imagine. Now, you may never have looked through a keyhole, um, but what about... You know, when you're in the hotel room, there's a little peephole in the door, and somebody knocks on the door, and you look through, and you can kind of see, 
enough to know if they're friend or foe, but you can't see everything going on in the hallway. Or it's kind of like when you're backing your car up and you've got the camera and it's showing you what's behind you and you can see enough to back up, but you wouldn't want to drive that way all the time because there's so much more going on that you can't see on that camera and we can see a little bit, but we know we're missing a lot. And, and so John Piper says, you know what? 10,000 things God is doing, we're seeing this and we complain we say, God, what are you doing? Well, there's so much more that he's doing. We just can't see it. We just don't know it. And, and right now, that means God may be doing 10,000 things in your life right now, in your life. And you see three of them. And you're complaining and saying, God, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm doing a lot. You just can't see it. I think, that's why Solomon said these words. He said, God has planted eternity in the human heart. In other words, we all know that there's eternity out there somewhere in some fashion. Even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. In other words, we can't see, we see three things, not 9,997 things. We see three things, and, and that's just kind of the way it is. We don't know everything that God is doing in our lives. So you say, okay, David, I get it. Quit complaining. But what's the big deal, really? Does it really matter if I complain? I mean, what if I don't quit complaining? Is it really that big a deal? Can I say to you, yeah, it actually is a big deal. It actually, I would say it's dangerous for you. And let me give you a couple reasons why. One of the reasons is when we complain, we just continue on in our immaturity. We never actually mature at all. And yeah, you can keep complaining, but you're never gonna grow up. And I say, how sad is that to never actually grow up? I suppose when I was a kid, because I couldn't curse, when I would be mad at my sister or brother, in all of my anger and with all the feelings that I could muster, I would get mad at them and I would say, why don't you just grow up, grow up, won't you? And it was just kind of, because not growing up, I mean, it's just, you go, how sad would that be? To never mature, to never grow up, but that's not the worst of it, the real tragedy, and I feel obligated to tell you these next two points, because you need to understand there are ramifications to our choosing to complain. And so one is we may never mature, but the bigger issue is really when we complain, it's offensive to God. And when I say it's offensive to God, it actually offends God when we complain. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Go back to the beginning of the books of the Bible. Exodus chapter 16, it's page 56. And when you read the Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible before Jesus, then a pattern quickly emerges. You look and you listen to the people, and very quickly you realize they're just normal people. They're normal people that are being written about in the Bible. But you also begin to realize they're kind of like us. They're complainers. They would do a lot of complaining. Exodus chapter 16 writes about, talks about a group of people from Israel just coming out of slavery, 400 years of slaves, chapter 16, verse one. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. So they haven't even been out of slavery for 30 days and they're already complaining. It's kind of like us with the weather, you know, we're happy that it's sunny today, but in a couple days we'll be complaining because it's too hot, when is it gonna rain? And that's just kind of the way we are. Verse three, if the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned, there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. And 
So they start complaining. God is gracious to them. He sends them meat. He sends them bread to eat every single day. It's an amazing story. You ought to read it sometime, but not now. Right now, go over to Numbers chapter 11, page 114. A couple books over, Numbers chapter 11. I just want to continue on the story. I want you to see what happens to these people. Numbers chapter 11, page 114. Let me begin chapter 11, verse 1. Still complaining. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship and the Lord heard everything they said. This time, then the Lord's anger blazed against them and he sent fire to rage among them and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people screamed to Moses for help and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. Apparently, they pushed a little too far. Apparently, our complaints offend the heart of God. In other words, it arouses God's anger. It just ticks them off and apparently there comes a point where God says, you know what, you're complaining too much. Enough, I'm done. And, and I don't know where that line is, but what it says to us is he takes our complaining personally. It personally offends him, and I think it's because when we complain at our deepest level, what we're saying is, God, do you know what's going on in my life? God, do you know what you're doing to my life? God, how can I trust you with my life? I can't trust you. God, I don't like what you're doing here. And we keep on complaining and all of a sudden, God says, you know what? I'm done. Enough. And apparently, watching a few people burn doesn't stop the rest of the people from complaining for very long. And so they keep on complaining. And Moses, their leader, he's had enough. And so he starts complaining about them complaining. Chapter 11, verse 10. Moses heard all the family standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is the way you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me now. Do me a favor, spare me of all of this misery. And he's just whining and complaining and he jumps into the fray and complains as well. And at some point, again, I don't know when that point is, at some point, God says enough. Apparently there's a limit there and God is incredibly patient and God is incredibly long-suffering, but at some point he says enough. And so go over to chapter 14, a couple pages over. Numbers chapter 14. And this is God's response to the people. He's had enough. Verse 26, Numbers chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long, how long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints about me? See, God took their complaining, and he takes your complaining and my complaining as against him. We're not just whining about the food. We're not just whining about the weather. We're not just whining about our job. We're taking... It, and he takes it as a personal offense. He says, yes, I've heard the complaints that the Israelites are making against me. Now tell them this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness. You thought that was what's gonna happen? Okay, it will happen. Because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years 
old or older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land that I swore to give you. The only exception will be Caleb, son of Jephneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. You said your children would be carried off as plunder. Well, I'm gonna bring them safely into the land and they will enjoy what you have despised. But as for you, you'll drop dead in the wilderness and your children will be like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In this way, they will pay for your faithlessness until the last of you dies, lies dead in the wilderness. I think God's mad. I think he's had enough. Have you ever pushed somebody too far? I mean, you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and finally you push them too far. We talk about poking the bear. You keep poking the bear, at some point he's gonna wake up. And apparently they poked enough where all of a sudden God said, I'm done. I'm done. The sad thing is, when Moses tells the people God's response to them, all of a sudden they say, oh, okay, we're sorry, we're sorry, but it was too late. Look at, look at verse 39 of chapter 11. When Moses reported the Lord's words to all the Israelites, the people were filled with grief. <laughs> yeah, they would be because they were all just told they're gonna die in the wilderness. Then they got up early the next morning, went to the top of the range of hills. Let's go, they said. We realize that we have sinned, but now we're ready in to enter the land that the Lord has promised us. But it was too late. See, God had prepared this incredible place for them to live. He called it the promised land. It was gonna be amazing, like nothing they'd ever seen before. But they complained and they pushed back and they pushed back and finally they pushed back too far and they missed out on the blessings of God. And here's what you need to know. When we persist in our complaining, our complaints may block the flow of God's blessing in our lives. Your complaining may cause God to go, you know what, that's fine. I'm done. And I had some really cool things in store for you, right around the corner, just right there for you. But you know what? If you wanna stay where you are, that's fine. If you don't wanna trust me with your future, with your life, that's fine. Just stay where you are. And we block the flow of God's blessings in our lives, and we never know. I mean, all we see is the three things, and he's doing 9,000 other things, and we think that's it, and we miss out, and we complain. God says enough. And so you know how I think we're supposed to respond to trouble? Rather than complaining, <laughs> I think we just need to shut up and listen. Just shut up and listen. I've got to tell you, it was hard actually for me to say shut up because I ate soap for saying shut up when I was a kid. So for me to say that to you was actually a big deal. And my, my first four years of school, uh, we actually lived, my family, in Paris, France, outside of Paris, France. So my first four years of school were actually in French schools, French-speaking schools. You know how the French teachers would tell us to shut up? Ferme la bouche. That was kind of the phrase that they would use, and apparently I heard it often because most all the rest of my French I've forgotten, but I remember ferme la bouche, shut your mouth. And I think what James is saying, I think what God would say to us is, you know what, when you're going through a hard time, just shut up and listen, ferme la bouche. Be quiet and listen because I'm doing something in your life right now. You just see this, but there is so much more going on around you, 10,000 things. He says that I'm doing. You're complaining, and God says, I'm doing something in your life to make you strong. You're complaining, and God says, I'm doing something in your life to make you wise. You're complaining, and God says, I'm doing something in your life to build maturity into your life so you can experience life to its fullest, so you can experience a remarkable life, everything that I've got planned for you, and if you push too far, you're gonna miss out. 
Because at some point God goes, okay, that's fine. If you want to live in this world, live in that world. But there's so much more in store and so much more to offer. And so, fermi la bouche, just shut up and listen. Ron Fry has been a part of LCBC for almost 20 years. Ron Fry has a lot of reasons to complain about his life, but rather than complain, at some point he decided just to shut up and listen to God. And at some point, in the midst of all of his troubles, he decided, you know what, I'm just gonna be quiet and I'm gonna listen and see what God has to say to me. And so I want you to listen to Ron's story. As you listen to Ron's story, can I just challenge you again? Maybe for you, the best thing you could do today is just shut up and listen. Fermi la bouche, listen to Ron's story. I have been an explosive engineer for 43 years, and we moved here because there's so much rock and uh, there's just a need for an explosive engineer. And it was 1999 that I had a blasting accident and a gentleman was killed. Immediately, the uh, federal government filed charges against me, and so did the uh, state government. Life became so stressful that uh, my wife and I, Cindy, uh, we were separated. One day we were invited to a service at uh, LCBC. We decided that we were gonna sit down and at least worship together. Pastor Dave gave a message on marriage renewal. And after the service, Cindy actually asked me to come back home. And that's where our relationship with LCBC came. Actually, two lives changed by Christ. Went through the next two years of being in court, LCBC people surrounded me with their prayers, their love. We trusted in God's decision. The state government dropped their charges first, finding no negligence on my part. It was shortly after that that the federal government uh, dropped their charges against me. So LCBC had become a way of life for us. Life kind of went on. diagnosis was not very good. God, why, why is this happening to me? Why me? Again, after I went through all that I went through years ago with the blasting accident, why now cancer? They were telling me then that if I did not do what they recommended that I do, that within six months the cancer meta would metastasize to the point that I would be close to death. I prayed that God would lead me in whatever direction he wanted me to, to go. In Genesis, it spoke of when God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said that there was everything that they needed, everything. So what I did is I began more uh, organic treatment of my cancer. Uh, it was also at that time that I started to do more prayer and Bible study. Before I was diagnosed with cancer, I would probably pray once a day, yeah, and I would give God my time in Scripture when I felt that I wanted to give God that. And now I was giving God more of that. And He continued to lead me so many places in Scripture as to where I felt that I needed to go. Uh, my oncologist kept telling me, 
Whatever you're doing, keep doing. You are a miracle. And I kept reminding him, it's not me that's the miracle. God is, is performing a miracle in me. By December of 2016, which would have been one year after my cancer diagnosis, I had a, a CT scan done. And on, in that CT scan, it showed that the cancer metastasis had completely stopped. There was no cancer in my liver or in my lungs, which is where colon cancer is initially spreads to. That cancer diagnosis was devastating to me. But the big thing that I found out is that no matter what the circumstances, whether it's financial troubles, maybe marital problems, no matter what that thing that comes up in your life it is, that the answer is to take it to God. This was my mountain. This was my mountain to move, and God is moving that mountain for me. And I believe that one day that I will be cancer-free. And, and I give all that glory to God because it's not about me. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about what God is doing with me.